0: Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody tonight. Glad that you're here as we study God's Word together, looking at Zechariah, a new day for God's people, and we're to chapter 11 tonight, and so we're glad that you're here. Good to see all of you. Good to be back with you. I appreciate Jack teaching last Wednesday night while we were gone, and uh, and then, of course, Michael on last Sunday morning. But it's good to be back with you. had a great time at the uh, preaching conference and then at the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte, North Carolina. And had a a great trip here. That's a a great place to go visit if you ever get a chance to do that. But it's good to see you tonight. And so let's pray together and we'll get started. Father, thank you tonight for your word, for how your word is powerful and active and sharp as a two-edged sword. And God, I just pray that you'd speak to us tonight through your word the things that you have spoken to your people and the predictions that you made that came true, the prophecies that came true. Father, we thank you for the eternal nature of your word and pray that, God, you would be our teacher tonight as we study it together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, well, we're not going to have a quiz tonight. I know that disappoints you. We've got a lot to get to tonight. Chapter 11, there's a lot in there, so we're going to get started on it so everybody gets 100 for the quiz tonight, so that's good. And uh, so, just pretend that you got all of them right. So, don't forget. Also, the Constitution and Bylaws Town Hall meeting will be in the parlor tonight. As soon as this is over at seven fifteen, if you have any questions about the Constitution and Bylaws that you would like to ask tonight and next Wednesday night, March, May thirty first, uh, we will have those um, that meeting as soon as this is over. Let me give you a background before we get to Chapter eleven, because if I share the background with you, this chapter is going to make a lot more sense. It's the background of the Jewish people, a portion of their history, and, and it's fascinating. And so I want to share that with you because this is what happened after the prophecy. Now remember, Zechariah, written around 520 years before Christ. So we're talking more than 500 years before Jesus even came. So the prophecy of what would happen the next 500 to 750 years into the future was exactly right on, and you're going to see tonight how this unfolds uh, in, the, in the history of, of Israel from chapter 11. So, here's the timeline. 520 years before Christ, Zechariah prophesied. Fast forward to the time of Christ, 520 years forward, Jesus born in 4 B.C., and then died in 30 A.D., making him 33 years old. There's no year zero. Goes from 1 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. 4 B.C. to 30 A.D. died at the age of 33. So he died in 30 A.D. Fast forward 40 years after his death and resurrection and ascension back to heaven to 70 A.D. Most of chapter 11 is fulfilled in 70 A.D. So 40 years which is a generation in Scripture, 40 years from the time Jesus was crucified to 70 A.D., and here's what happened. As you know, the Romans were in control whenever Jesus was crucified. The Romans remained in control, but even after Jesus died, they continued to to control the Jewish people, and the Jews hated the control of the Romans. So what happened was, after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, the Jews began to just seethe more and more about the Romans being in control, hated it. And so they began to gather in Jerusalem and to, to protest as best they could. They really couldn't defeat the big Roman Empire. Protest as best they could the control of the Romans and how much they hated it. So they gathered in Jerusalem to do that. The Romans heard that a gathering is is starting there in Jerusalem. So in 66 AD, the Romans sent troops in to quell the Jewish people, didn't really want to kill them, but just to make sure that they stayed in control. So for seven years, 66 AD to 73 AD, the Romans were in Jerusalem, the troops were there, making sure that the Jews stayed in line. Well, the Jews would do the uprising from time to time, try to fight back against the Romans. And finally, the emperor of Rome by the name of Vespasian had had enough. I'm sending in my military to put you down once and for all. Now, some historians say he didn't really mean to burn the whole city. But Titus was the commander of the military. Titus later became an emperor of Rome himself. But he was the military commander. So Vespasian, the emperor, told Titus, go in with your troops and just make sure the Jews are in their place. Well, Titus marched in 70 A.D. with his military intact. Four days before Passover, April of 70 A.D., gathered his troops where we stay at the King David Hotel. Now, and, and that's where the troops were marshaled the night before And then three days before Passover, early the next morning, he marches into Jerusalem with his troops. And the first thing he does is set fire to the temple. Well, if you're going to attack a Jew, what do you attack first? Their beloved temple. Boy, that did it. Set fire to the temple, marched through two city walls, could not breach the third wall, but surrounded the city where the Jews couldn't get out and they were there five months imagine five months you're in the city of Jerusalem you don't have access to water except for what is there from previous kings in the Old Testament you don't have access to food so the Jews began to turn on one another for the five months tensions were high you're surrounded by the Romans there's no access to food they began to eat each other. Cannibalism. Now, you say, how do you know that happened? Well, Josephus, a book called Wars of the Jews, um, just a secular writer, um, wrote in the sixth chapter that cannibals, they began to cannibalize each other because there was no food. Turned on each other, and life got really hard. For five months, five months siege Eventually, by the time the five months were over, Titus had burned to the ground. The rest of the city only left three towers there. Everything else was charred and burned 70 A.D. and one million Jews were killed. That's prophesied in chapter 11. We're going to look at it in just a moment. Back in Rome... The Romans celebrated destroying the Jews. They loved it, hated Jews anyway. They loved it, so they had a big parade. They built two triumphal arches. They displayed the temple treasures they had stolen from Jerusalem. And there back in Rome, they were celebrating that the Jews as a people were no longer. And sure enough, that 70 AD invasion by Titus was a major turning point in all of Jewish history. With their primary city in ruins and their temple destroyed and burned, life for the Jews and one million people killed, life for the Jews was very different. Their culture had to be reshaped for them to survive. The Romans would not allow Jews back into the city of Jerusalem, they were banned from entering it at all, so they couldn't go back to Jerusalem. So they lived outside of Jerusalem. Various towns outside there. Most of them lived in Judea to the south, toward the Dead Sea. But their culture had to be reshaped. The Jewish priesthood ceased to exist. The Sadducees ceased to exist. The Pharisees continued to exist because a small fraction formed into another group called the Rabbinic Jews. And today, the Rabbinic Jews are still in control of any, any religious life in Israel is going on today as the rabbinic Judaism and that's that started back in 70 AD and still continues even to this day. Jews were not allowed to go back to Jerusalem. You could not enter the city at all. would be killed if you tried. What did they do with the Romans do with the city of Jerusalem? They rebuilt one of their own Roman colonies on top of the ruins of Jerusalem and they renamed it. They named it Aelia Capitolina. And they erected a, of the Temple Mount, they erected a temple to Jupiter. The ultimate insult to the Jews who worship Yahweh at that same location. Privately, the Jews, they hated the Romans even more. Now they see their beloved city under Roman control. They can't go back. They know that a temple there to Jupiter has been erected. And now they are seething even more what few are left. And they hate the Romans with a passion. And they couldn't wait for Messiah to come. And they were hoping he would come during the time frame where they could overthrow the Romans and restore Jewish nationalism. And for sixty years, they seethed and hated Rome. Sixty years after one seventy AD is around one hundred thirty AD. One hundred thirty AD, a leader of the Jews remained. What Jews remained were in the south, in the Judean area, and a leader emerged. Very charismatic guy, very fiery man. And the Jews begin to think, hey, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the one that's going to overthrow the hated Romans and once again restore us. And so they little by little begin to rebel there in the south against the Romans once again. And Rome, they, they cared little for bringing troops all the way across the empire from Rome just to quell a little uprising of Jews. So they just let them be. And the more they let them be and the, and the Jews pushed back, the more they begin to think, hey, I think we, we can declare ourselves an independent nation. So they did. 132 A.D. They declared themselves the independent state of House of Israel was their new name. And they had a fiery new leader that everybody loved. They thought he might could be the Messiah. And they named him Simon bar Koba, Which meant in Aramaic, son of a star. He called himself the Nasser. N-A-S-A-I-R. Which today, the Nasser is still, it's the president in modern Hebrew of Israel. The word means prince. So he declares himself to be the prince. And the Jews are thinking maybe, just maybe, we can overthrow Rome, once again have independence status, go back into Jerusalem, and God's promise from the Old Testament would be restored. That's what they thought. So Jews from other countries moved back to join the rebellion because God's in it. Sure enough, 132, they rebelled officially against Rome, Rome had had enough. Emperor Hadrian sent massive troops across the empire to put down the Jewish revolt, and they fought them off for two and a half years. But finally, they were defeated in 136 AD. It was massive casualties for the Jews. Some historians call it a genocide, and the Jewish people barely even ceased to exist, and they were destroyed. Afterwards, the Jewish people loathed bar Koba. They said, you're no Messiah at all. You were defeated like everyone else. And in the Talmud, they changed his name from bar Koba to Simon Ben-Kasubah, which meant son of deception. He's a deceiver. He's not the Messiah. That's a little bit of the history. Now, as we read chapter 11, you're going to understand it's going to make a lot more sense knowing that history, what God is prophesying 750 years before it ever even happens. What's going to happen? So first of all, look at letter A, a connection from chapter 10. To chapter 11 very briefly. As we closed two weeks ago, chapter 10, you may remember it was a prophecy of when north and south would come together and there would be glorious days in Israel and everybody would be happy and you're going, wow, how did it change from peace in chapter 10 to doom and gloom in chapter 11? That Israel would be overrun and the city and the nation once again captured again. What happened? Well, here's what happened. God told Israel, I'm sending you a long-awaited Messiah. But you're going to reject him. And you're going to kill him. Of course, we know it's Jesus. And as a result, your land and the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, they're all going to suffer and be ravaged by Titus because you rejected the shepherd. So chapter 11 is a description of what's going to happen when the Messiah comes and the Jews reject him. And so what you have in Zechariah chapter 11 is something very interesting. Zechariah the prophet starts to get into role-playing before the people. So as the preacher He is role-playing. He role-plays three groups of shepherds. The first group, verses 1 through 3, are the wailing shepherds. The second group, verses 4 through 14, the good shepherd, Jesus, the Messiah. And then the third shepherd, verses 15 to 17, the bad shepherd. Who could that be? We'll talk about it as we close. So let's look now at his role playing of the shepherds to prophesy what would come and the land being ravaged. So, read with me starting in verses one through three. Letter B destruction is coming to Jerusalem. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Fire is always a picture of judgment. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. And the sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Now, what this is describing is an invading army once again marching in to take Jerusalem. Who would that be? Titus. Titus in 70 A.D. Look at the names of the towns. Lebanon, Bashan, Thicket of the Jordan, the Jordan Valley. If you trace this on a map, it goes from north to south right through a mountain pass to Jerusalem. Which if you remember in chapter 9, Alexander the Great, that was the exact route taken by Alexander the Great and back in uh, or later in 70 AD the exact route taken by Titus so god is even telling us what way he's coming by doors uh, open your doors Lebanon the wail of the oaks of bashan the roar of the lion the thicket of the jordan he's telling you he's coming and it traces exactly Alexander the Great, as well as Titus. Now, there are some people that say this is a description of the temple and the royal house in Jerusalem being destroyed. You say, how? Because you get out of those three verses the temple. The temple's not mentioned. But in a few places in the Old Testament, Lebanon is a metaphor for the temple. Why? Why would the country of Lebanon be a metaphor for the royal palace in Jerusalem? Because trees were used from Lebanon to build the temple. And so much of the temple was built by trees from Lebanon. You say, wow, is, isn't that a stretch? No, because in Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-three, 23, the temple is referred to as Lebanon. In 1 Kings 7, 2, the temple is referred to as Lebanon. Then you go after the second temple period, around the time of Titus, the Talmud refers to the temple as Lebanon. So it's possible he's even prophesying the temple is going to be destroyed by an army coming from Lebanon through Bashan, through the Jordan Valley to Jerusalem. Now, a couple of things that you notice. The shepherds and the lions seem to represent the rulers and the leaders of Israel. They would wail because, because Titus is about to destroy everything in 70 AD. And we do know what happens. That's exactly what happened. But I want you to notice two unusual things about verses 1 through 3 before we move on. Do you notice a couple of things that seem odd to you? If you notice much about Israel or know much about Israel, a lot of trees are mentioned. There were no trees in Israel today. In the 1950s, there were none. The armies had stripped all the trees bare. Mark Twain went to Israel and said, This place is the most godforsaken place that ever It's ugly, it's a swamp. So, Israel began replanting trees back. Even today, you can plant trees in the name of someone, the memory of someone, and Israel still has this massive tree planting campaign going on because there were no trees until the 1950s, the 1960s. Well, in biblical days, you had forests because look at the forests that are mentioned here. So, that's the first thing that's kind of unusual. Evidently, in biblical times, The trees were plentiful in Israel, and the forests were thick. But notice something else in verse 3. Did you notice the roar of the lions? There are no lions in Israel today. I've never seen any there. I hope to never see any there. There are no lions. There are no bears. But the Bible talks about lions and bears in Israel in biblical times. Samson David killed a lion and a bear they came after his sheep Samson killed a lion and here we're told about lions so evidently during biblical times there were a lot of trees and there were lions there from this passage but yet they weren't there today, they aren't there today except for the trees that are being replanted now starting in verse 4, let's go to letter C on your outline, shepherds and the flock doomed to slaughter. Next, as we go to verse 4, now Zechariah shifts the role-playing. First of all, he was the shepherds doomed to destruction when Titus came in. Now he shifts and he role-plays before the people, the good shepherd. He is Jesus, a prophecy of Jesus to come 520 years later. And Jesus being rejected. Read verse 4. Thus says the Lord my God, Zechariah speaking, Behold, or become shepherd of the flock, doomed to slaughter. Titus is going to come in, Hadrian even after that, and kill basically all my people. All my sheep will be slaughtered. So now Zechariah role play. You're Jesus. You're the shepherd of the sheep about to be slaughtered. Verse 5, those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them, talking about the sheep, say, blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. So now he's referring to the shepherds as being the religious leaders when Jesus came. The priests, the scribes, the elders, the ones that crucified him. And he's saying the land would be ravaged because the Messiah came, you rejected him, but of course we're told in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53 that the Messiah is going to be rejected. Those who bought the sheep killed the sheep rather than caring for the sheep and they went unpunished for doing it. A picture of the religious leaders supposed to be the shepherd of the people. And they were killing the people. They were destroying their spiritual lives. Now the word sheep there is feminine. In verse 5 it's interesting because female sheep weren't killed. They were used for breeding for more sheep. So whenever Jews killed sheep and ate them, they never killed female sheep. They killed the male sheep and they kept the females for breeding. And so he's saying now that this was so bad because you did, not, you, you did not slaughter the female sheep at the time, but you religious leaders are killing the sheep you should be caring for in a picture of the religious leaders to come. Look at verse 6, God says, For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord, Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor. What's he describing? Remember the five-month siege where they started to get angry at one another, even kill each other, murder, famine, cannibalism? I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. King would strike the land. Titus would come. God would just sit back. I'm not going to deliver you. You rejected the Messiah when I sent him, and you killed him. I'm no longer going to have pity on you. Foreign king will come in. You'll turn against one one another, and I'm going to sit back and let it happen. Because it's punishment for you rejecting Christ. Verse 7. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter by the sheep traders. That's what, that's the sheep traders, that's the invading army. And Zechariah says, portraying Jesus, I took two staffs. One I named favor, and the other I named union, and I tended the sheep. So you can picture Zechariah's preaching to the people. He's role-playing like he's a a drama. They're probably fixated on what he's doing. He picks up one staff. I'm going to name you favor. And another staff, I'm going to name you union. And he holds them up in his hands. And the people are probably going, what on earth are you talking about? Favor is the word noam in Hebrew. It means no graciousness or no pleasantness. And the word that's used for union Hob halim literally means binding together or unifying. So here's what God was saying. I was the one that always granted favor to you as a people. And in Jesus, you have favor. And I'm the one that unified you as a people. I'm the one that led you through the wilderness and have brought you to this point. You are who you are because of me. I've been your union. And so he talked about union. In favor. What's interesting, Eastern uh, shepherds near, in the Near East, they would carry a rod, uh, a staff, uh, a rod and a staff. They carried both. Psalms 23, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They were not the same. The rod was one long, solid stick, as we would know it, and the shepherd would use this to discipline the sheep if they needed that, but primarily would use it to fight off wild beasts who would try to attack the sheep. They used the staff, which was a a stick with a crook on the end of it. The rod was just one long stick. The staff had a crook on the end of it, and this was used for rescuing the sheep. Sometimes they would go down a mountainside, they would get into a crevice, they couldn't get out. The shepherd couldn't go down to get them, so he would use a staff to rescue the sheep. So very beautifully and in a picturesque way, God is saying, Israel, I've always been the one that's defended you when people have come against you. But you're saying in a moment, he's going to break the staff no more. And I've always been the one to unify you, but it'll break no more. I'm going to let Titus come in. You're not going to be unified. You're going to be divided. You're going to even start eating each other. And I've always been the one to defend you. But because you rejected the Messiah, I'm breaking the staff favor. And I'm breaking the staff union. Now look at verse 8. In one month, I destroyed the shepherds. But I came impatient with them, and they detested me." What's going on there? Verse 8, Dr. Baldwin says, is the most difficult verse in all the Old Testament to interpret. Because you have a statement, in one month I destroyed three shepherds. When did that happen? We don't know. So what is he talking about? Some Bible scholars just say, I don't know. And they move on to verse 9. Broadman Commentary says, we don't know. So what are some possibilities? Who are the three shepherds? One month, I destroyed them. Well, one theory, there, there are actually 40 different interpretations. I'll not go through all of them. I know you'll be glad for that tonight. 40 different interpretations at one verse, what it could mean. Let me give you the top three. Some Bible scholars believe that these three shepherds are actual rulers and leaders of Israel right before Titus invaded. Because there are parts of Israel's history we don't really have a record of. Really, 350 to 200 BC, there are a lot of things happening. We really don't have a record at all. Could have been leaders during that time period that we never knew. It's possible. So there could have been the three shepherds that were destroyed in one month. And we just don't know it because history didn't record it. That's one theory. Second theory is that the three shepherds represent all of Israel's unfaithful leaders through the years. Eh, maybe. I think here's the best interpretation. A lot of scholars believe the three shepherds were the three classes of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. And the reason that's probably the possibility is because in Luke 9.22, Jesus himself names three groups specifically that would reject him. And, and Dr. Unger says one month before Jesus was crucified, their activity increased. The elders, the chief priests, the scribes. So verse 8 very well could be describing the death of Jesus. In one month, I destroy the three shepherds. Look at verse 9, so I said, I will not be your shepherd. This is Jesus speaking to the people. What is to die? Let it die. What is to be destroyed? Let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. Okay, hold on, wait a second here. Did Zechariah say they would devour each other's flesh and become cannibals? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So Jesus is saying, I came to you as your Messiah, you will reject me, you will kill me, and so therefore I'm taking my hands off, and death and destruction and cannibalism and you name it's going to come in, and God will simply let things take their course. You know, folks, sometimes God does that. Sometimes if you are intent on going your own way, God will let you go your own way and let the consequences happen what may. You see that all the time. God lets actions take their course and the consequences of your choices come back to roost. And that happened to Israel in verse 9. Verse 10. And I took my staff favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Obviously, the picture of breaking the staff, God no longer would be their favor, breaking the staff union, God would no longer be their unifier. But there's one major question out of those two verses that is kind of interesting. Wait a minute, God says, I am annulling the covenant that I've made with the peoples. I thought God never broke a promise. God made covenants with Abraham, Noah, Jacob. Is he going back on his word? He says, I'm going to annul the covenants. And so, what you see here is, it's, it doesn't really mean that he's breaking his covenant. It meant that he's breaking his protection of them and the favor he had given them. Not that he was annulling, because we're going to see in Revelation, he once again fulfills every promise to every one of the covenants he made. So he's temporarily breaking favor and union because they rejected Christ. Christ. Now, like verse 13, then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, or I'm sorry, let's go to verse 12. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Well, that raises your attention, doesn't it? Because that's Judas. What was going on? It's an odd phrase, verse 12 is an odd request. Since Zechariah was terminating his protection of the flock and was going to let Titus come in and and just destroy the land and the people, Zechariah, representing God, told the people, okay, you pay me what what you owe me for all these years of protection over you. So, what do you owe me? you don't want to pay me that's fine you keep it why do you owe me for all these years of protection through the wilderness through everything and the people when Zechariah said this counted up their money weighed it out and the amount came to be 30 shekels of silver was that just a random number no Exodus 21:32 tells us the price of a slave, of a dead slave, is 30 pieces of silver. Not the price of an active slave who can help you, the price of a gourd or a dead slave, 30 pieces of silver. It was a steep price for the day, but really wasn't that much in relation to all that the shepherd had done for them for the years. In fact, it's kind of an insult. Oh, yeah, thanks for your protection all these years. Here's you a few pennies. So they were actually telling the great shepherd, I can buy a dead slave and he'd do as much for me as you did, God. It was an insult to God. Also, whenever whenever Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, it really wasn't that great of an amount at that time either. So it wasn't like Judas sold out Jesus for this millions and millions of dollars. So scholars have kind of scratched their heads. Why would Judas betray Jesus for such a piddling amount? Might there have been another motive. Which, that's, another, that's another discussion. So verse 13, the, the Lord said to me, Throw the money to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Now, God instructed Zechariah to throw the 30 shekels of silver to the potter in the temple. Evidently, this, this drama was taking place in the temple courtyard. Because throwing something to the potter, according to Dr. Merrill Unger, was a way of expressing disdain because potters were... Poor, lowly craftsmen. And the potter's field was where the potter would take damaged and rejected and broken and pots and throw them away. Now, we know what happened in Matthew 27, 3 through 10. Judas went to the authorities, betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It's mentioned here. And then he took the money and realized he had betrayed innocent blood. He threw it down in the temple, which is what God told Zechariah to do. And the priest gathered the money that Zechariah, chapter 27, verses 9 and 10 of Matthew, the priest gathered the money that Judas threw down and went and purchased the potter's field, which is just south of Jerusalem, which is a burying ground for the poor, where the potter discarded the poor and the, the rejected and the damaged symbolic that Jesus himself truly purchased the potter's field on the cross, the damaged, the broken, the rejected, the useless people of society. So it's an interesting interplay between what Matthew says happened to Jesus and what Zechariah prophesies. Now, one quick note, and we'll, we'll close in a moment. In Matthew we're told as the prophet Jeremiah predicted he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Wait a minute. Jeremiah? We're in Zechariah. Jeremiah? Was Matthew wrong? Was the Bible wrong? Did the Bible have an error? What's happening? Here's some theories. Some people say that Matthew said it correctly, Zechariah, but the copyist, copying the Bible later on, accidentally recorded Jeremiah rather than Zechariah. No. God even preserved the preservation, the, the copying trans- the process. That's what some people say. Others say, well, Jeremiah spoke it, but Zechariah recorded it. And that's partially true. It could have been that. could have been referring to who said it, not who wrote it down. But Zechariah said it also. Some people say Matthew was probably referring to Jeremiah 32, 6 through 9, which basically uses the phraseology of Zechariah, and Matthew was technically correct. Jeremiah did say that. Or it could be this. It was not uncommon in in, in the Bible that whenever two books quote something, you only refer to the greater one. It's very possible Matthew was referring to Jeremiah because Jeremiah and Zechariah both wrote it. And he's only referring to Jeremiah because he's the larger prophet, the greater of the prophets. And that's possible because in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, the same thing happened again. Isaiah said something, 40 verse 3, Malachi said something, chapter 3 verse 1, but he only says Isaiah said it, the greater prophet. So that's probably what was going on. Not that the Bible's incorrect or has an error, but he's referring to the one who said it, who was the greater of the two prophets, which would have been Jeremiah. Let's move on, verse 14. Then I broke my second-staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Sure enough, just before Titus invaded, 70 A.D., God's saying, I'm taking my unifying factor away. You're going to be at odds. And sure enough, right before Titus invaded, the Jews had a massive internal squabble. It's recorded in Josephus. And God's favor and unity over the people was broken. Now let's go to 15 through 17 and we'll close. Now Zechariah represents a third shepherd. This one, a bad shepherd. Not Jesus. Somebody else. Who was it? Let's read. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in a land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. Let's cover this for two or three minutes and we'll close. Now God directed Zechariah to present himself as this foolish or worthless shepherd. And in this role, the bad shepherd would fail to do for the sheep what the good shepherd did do. This shepherd would devour the sheep. He would eat the sheep he would even eat them all the way down to their hooves tearing off the last edible morsel that can be scavenged off the sheep and consuming it whenever jesus talked in john 10:11 who did he say was the bad shepherd the enemy doesn't the enemy comes only to steal kill and destroy jesus said i'm the good shepherd that came to give life so God pronounced judgment on this bad, worthless shepherd. And he says, I'm going to, notice the, his, his arm and his right eye. What's that talking about? His arm symbolized power. I'm going to paralyze your power. And his, his eye represented intelligence. I'm going to nullify your intelligence and render you incapable of hurting anybody anymore. So who is this bad shepherd that's going to come years later. Several theories. One theory is this worthless shepherd is actually the Jewish people because if you remember, when the good shepherd was about to be crucified, they said, crucify him, give us Barabbas, fulfilling what Zechariah said. So it's possible to be the Jewish people themselves. Second theory is that it's religious leaders of the day. They have become shepherd of the sheep who devour the sheep and lead them astray, which the religious leaders did in Jesus' day. Third theory. You remember Simon bar 132, that gathered the remnant in Judah and they held him as Messiah, and he fought off the Romans for two and a half years, but eventually Simon bar he, ha- he led this if ineffective Jewish revolt against the Romans, and some people hailed him as the Messiah. Some people say, this is a reference to bar to come. Maybe. But the most common theory, number four, it's a reference to the Antichrist, the worthless shepherd who will make a covenant with Israel in the end times and then break it and start persecuting the Jews as we saw in our Revelation studies going to happen. Most Bible scholars believe this worthless shepherd in verses 15 to 17 is actually the Antichrist that will come to end times, but yet God will once again restore his people, nullify his effect, and restore his people. Fascinating chapter, as you see prophesied, 520 B.C., And then you see what happened, not only in Jesus, but even in Titus in 70 AD and Barcoba in 132 AD. All the way down the line, you see what Jesus and what God had predicted here absolutely coming to pass. Next week, we'll look at chapter 12, and we'll pick up there. If you have any questions or comments, see me afterwards. Feel free to email me. I'm always glad to hear from you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you tonight for your word. Thank you, God, for how you prophesy things and they happen exactly the way you say. Thank you that we know Jesus to be the Messiah. And, God, we do not reject him. We believe in him and trust him tonight as Savior and Lord. God, would you guide us the rest of this week serving the good shepherd. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.